Hello and welcome to the third part of the Three Deaths No Life podcast, written and read by me, Alan Boyce. Just to give you a very quick recap of where we are up to, our alleged hero and confirmed narrator, Sean Strong, the astral traveller, is telling us the story of his multiple lives and multiple deaths and the unusual circumstances in which they came about. In the second part last week, we uh, heard how Sean met Keith, his only friend uh, for life, after he ran him over with a library trolley. Um, We went on to hear about Keith's creative projects that never come to fruition, uh, his belief in a malevolent system that is out to get him, and his general uh, misanthropy against all other human beings. In spite of Keith's challenging qualities as a human being and a friend, he and Sean become inseparable and our tale really gets going when they take a holiday together, a camping holiday in the north of England, which culminates in Sean telling Keith about his astral traveller gift uh, whilst very drunk. Sean thinks the day after that Keith won't remember, but Uh, He soon reveals that he does, and he has plans. Um, This is going to be a fairly long podcast today, as when I wrote the story, I didn't do so with the intention of splitting it down into evenly sized chunks, each of which ends with a suitably dramatic cliffhanger to keep you intrigued until next time. So I'm going to read up until I get to that cliffhanger point. Here we go with part three of Three Deaths, No Life. It turns out that I'd filled Keith in on more or less everything, repeatedly, as we made our way back to the car park two nights ago. Keith had been gaining in lucidity as I lost it. I guess our metabolisms just work differently or something. I was pleased to discover, though, that I had stuck to my pre-arranged cover story when Keith asked me what had happened two weeks ago to bring on the discovery of my until-then hidden abilities. I said nothing special, that one night I just found myself outside my body and things had gone on from there. Keith looked sceptical, probed a little on the precise date, but left things there. I was just relieved not to have revealed myself completely. I vowed never to get so drunk again. A vow I did actually keep, for what it's worth, which is nothing, really. We drove back from Northumberland in virtual silence. I don't know if you've ever driven from the far north of England to the south-east, but it really does take a ridiculously long time. If you're like me, you think of the north as centred somewhere around Leeds or Manchester, but there is a hell of a lot more north beyond there. I could tell that Keith's mind was working overtime as he drove. His jaw was twitching and he stroked his chin nervously as we sped monotonously down the A1. Mostly I stared out of the window. Endless vistas of fields, clumps of pine trees and in the distance bald humps of hills. Flyovers, anonymous warehouses, boarded up and crumbling roadside diners. All these marginal places, no more real to motorway travellers than sights on a television screen. What is over the top of that ridge? Who is working in that windowless building? What is the hovering kestrel about to dive onto? 
What was the last thought that went through the mind of that fox on the hard shoulder before unnoticed speeding metal transformed it into a steaming pile of mangled flesh, fur and bone shards? Again, I'm an observer and a passenger. Life goes on here, indifferent to my presence, unaware of my attention. I stare into the faces of impassive East European truckers as we glide past them. What is he transporting? Has he really driven here from Romania? Europa endless. What does he do at night? Who does he talk to? Would he rather be here or back in Bucharest? He looks round and catches my eye. Instinctively, I look away and pretend to be doing something else. The traffic ebbs and flows. We overtake a car. Five minutes later, it overtakes us. We drop down to 45 miles per hour as a car towing a caravan decides to overtake a motorhome. Keith is making a clicking noise at the back of his throat. Even with both back windows open, the car still stinks of sick. 240 miles to London. I shut my eyes, but sleep wouldn't come. After we got back home, I didn't see Keith for a couple of days. I was starting to worry that my only friend had abandoned me, convinced that I'd gone insane. The hire car had also been in Keith's name, and he'd been banned from ever using that company again. Just when I was beginning to despair, he turned up at my house one evening after work. As we sat down to a cup of tea, Keith looked more excited than I'd ever seen him about any of his many projects. So, are you ready to start the tests? The tests? We need to see what you can do, and how you do it. I don't know how I do it. I just sort of choose, and then I'm either doing it or I'm asleep. Don't worry about the how side of things at the moment. Keith sat forward in his chair. If we're going to take advantage of whatever it is you've got, we've got to know the limits, the parameters we're working within. I asked what Keith meant by take advantage. Sean, if you can do what you told me you can do, then we are laughing. I've made up these experiments. We're going to test you, and once we know what you can do, we'll get on to how, so you can teach me. The significance of those last few words didn't strike me until much, much later. The tests began as ways for me to prove to Keith that this was not all complete bullshit. He was remarkably patient, which was out of character. So, I've written a message on a piece of paper in my bedroom at home. I want you to tell me what it says. Where is it? It's in my bedroom. No, your house. I've never been to Keith's house. Gradually, we narrowed down the location of the message. So, you know how to get there? Yeah. It's in my room, which is the one at the top of the stairs. You should be able to tell if you look in the others. Where in your room? On a piece of paper, in my desk drawer. I won't be able to see it if it's in a drawer. I can't open drawers, and if I put my head in, it will be too dark to see. Keith sighed. He took out his mobile phone. Mum? It's Keith. Keith? Yeah. No, I won't. No. Mum, just listen. Listen! I'm at a friend's house. Yes, him. The library. Library! This continued for some time, as Keith requested that his mother go to his room and remove an envelope from his desk drawer, while looking at and touching nothing else. Can she take it out of the envelope as well? Because I won't be able to, I pointed out. This led to more discussion. Yes, it's a white envelope on the top. Just open it and put the note on the desk. Yes, a scrap of paper. No, don't read it out! Mum, you've messed it up! 
For Christ's sake, I just said not to read it out. He hadn't actually said that until she had read it out, but I thought it best to stay out of it. Just write something on the envelope. I don't know anything. I can't tell you what to write or it will defeat the object again. Oh, that's power conditioning your language, Mum. What? Nothing. Anything. Okay, now leave it on the desk, face up. Now go out of the room and shut the door. No, it's just an experiment. All right, thank you. Yes. About eight. I don't know, peas? The conversation ended. Keith exhaled heavily and turned to look at me with expectancy. You want me to do it now? Keith snorted with laughter. If you wouldn't mind, after I've just had to get my bloody mother to go into my desk and open the envelope for you. Jesus, it's a good job she has no curiosity about anything in the world beyond her TV. You want me to go to sleep now? Can't you go to sleep? I'm not really tired. It's 6.30. Can you just fucking try to go to sleep? Keith exploded, shaking his hands like claws, as if he were strangling the memory of his mother. Well, I tried, and although I am usually the sort of person who can go to sleep on demand, I couldn't right now. And Keith had told his mum he'd be home by eight for his dinner. We agreed that I'd go and have a look overnight and ring Keith when I'd done it. I'm going to put the note on top of the fridge in the kitchen. I'll leave the light on in there for you. My mum goes to bed around ten, so don't come before then. Don't go upstairs, all right? I trust you, Sean, not to spy on me. I'll know if you do. I'll be able to see it in your eyes. Don't go in my room. I will wait in the kitchen until you call me. And then we'll know what all this means. Keith was a little nervous, having realised some of the implications of what I could do. But he trusted me. I don't think he thought I was capable of betraying him, really. And I wasn't. I went to bed early, about 11pm, so as to be sure Keith's mum was out of the way. I'll be honest, I did not find it easy to drop off. I had a very bad feeling about where this was heading. I can't really say it was a premonition, because I don't think anyone could have expected things to pan out precisely the way they did, but I was very nervous about the level of change that every single course of action open to me at that moment was going to bring into my life. I wasn't unhappy with my life, really. And now I was heading irreversibly into the unknown because of a mad skyborne epiphany and a bottle of vodka. But if I didn't do it, what would Keith say? I had to do it because he told me to. Like I said, I'm a follower. I tossed and turned. It was hot that night. My urethra was itching deep down to my prostate gland. I tried to soothe it by having a wank, but even with my vast collection of suitable memories, I just could not get it up. All I could think about was Keith. And his mum. Neither of them were in the least bit sexually attractive to me. Where was all this going to take me? Why had I not just kept my mouth shut that night, like I had done every night, every day of my life before? I'd been drunk before, of course, but no matter how hammered I'd been on other occasions, my brain knew to keep my mouth shut, just the same as it knew the way home from wherever I found myself. That's another gift of mine. I always wake up in my own bed, even if I have no idea how I got there. It wasn't the booze. It was the nagging, subterranean desire for a change that made me do it. The heightened feelings of those few days had tipped me over the edge, but I realise now that I've been yearning for someone to tell for years. And that day when he approached me in the library, my unconscious mind had settled on Keith. Settled for Keith. 
So it was just a matter of time until I did it. Why worry now? This was always going to happen. Eventually I dozed off. Sometimes you have to try to get to sleep. You have to work at switching your mind off. But at others it sneaks up on you. Plenty of times I'd been taken so suddenly by it that I hadn't noticed the fork in the road until I'd passed it. And I woke up the next morning having been nowhere at all. It was quite a relief when that happened, to be honest. Tonight, though, I managed to keep my wits about me enough to notice it coming on. I went left, and there I was, looking down on my sleeping body from the ceiling of my childhood bedroom. I used to have Thundercats wallpaper and a Fraggle Rock bedspread, then later black ash furniture with red handles and a red and grey striped carpet. Now my bedroom was decorated in the timeless manner of spare rooms everywhere, off-white walls, orange pine furniture, unisex green soft furnishings, beige carpet. Redecorating it in this tribute to Visitor Impersonal was one of the last projects my father undertook before he died. I don't remember being asked what I wanted, but what they did was fine. I'd gone off the teenage look a few years earlier, but I hadn't really thought about what I'd rather have instead. So there I was on the ceiling. I drifted down to the floor, passed through the door, I can't sleep with the door open, down the stairs and out of the living room window onto the street. The cul-de-sac was quiet. Cars were parked on every drive and in front of most of the gardens as well. A couple of my neighbours' houses still had lights on behind their curtains. Bernard and Maureen, they'd probably be doing it on their living room sofa by now, it being bake-off night. Mr Turpitz, like the battleship, annotating his Bible as usual while his dog whined at the back door. Suburban nightlife in all its mundane glory. A tawny owl hooted in the woods over towards St John's. It sounded sad. I set off for Keith's house over the other side of town. I'd never been there before. My mind was elsewhere and I found myself automatically heading for the bridge before I remembered that I could glide over the canal anywhere I chose to. Funny how your brain works completely differently when someone's expecting you. Keith lived in a Victorian terrace house over towards West Byfleet. He didn't have a front garden, he had a yard. None of the houses had driveways here, and practically the whole road was double parked with cars and vans ramped up on the pavement. There were lights on downstairs and upstairs at Keith's house. I took a deep breath, that's a metaphor, I wasn't breathing, and went through the front door. The house was very brown. Even the things that weren't brown seemed brown. Nothing had the appearance of having been bought in this or either of the previous two decades. The hall carpet was heavily patterned, primarily red, but a brownish-greenish-red, and had a transparent plastic runner over the centre to protect it, leading from the front door to the kitchen at the back of the house. The kitchen door was half open, and a dim light shone through into the darkened hallway. There was a staircase to my left. At the top of the stairs was the door to Keith's room, from which he had explicitly banned me. The staircase, carpeted in the same paisley psychedelia, was suffused with a dull brownish-blue glow from under Keith's bedroom door, casting banister shadows fit for a creeping Nosferatu onto the opposite wall. I went into the kitchen. There, sat at the breakfast bar on a brown stool, was Keith. He looked very jumpy. He was eating something brown, with peas in it, out of a steaming orange Tupperware container. 
His head flipped from left to right as the house creaked and sounds of nocturnal surrey broke the silence. I set myself opposite him, but of course he was completely unaware that I was there. I drifted up to the ceiling and floated above the fridge freezer. There was a crumpled piece of paper there and it said, Green milk, onions, bovril, toothpaste. I'd completed the test. Now what? I went back to the bottom of the stairs and looked up at the forbidden door. No, Keith trusted me, and I didn't want to start my new life with more lies and secrets. I woke up. I reached out for my phone, and I texted Keith the fateful words, green milk, onions, bovril, toothpaste. I was pleased to note that the itching had relieved itself. Seconds later, he replied, I'll be round at 10am tomorrow. Keith was one of those people whose texts were always correctly and fully punctuated. He would always close with a full stop. No turning back. Keith was indeed at my house at 10am the following morning. He looked excited, the same as when he was making historical Jesus notes. Sean, we have a tremendous opportunity here. A tremendous opportunity. He stressed the second tremendous as I was putting a mug of tea down in front of him. Keith sat forward in his armchair, formerly my dad's favourite, and looked at the floor, furrowing his brow. I adopted a similar posture and an identical expression of serious thought, although I was actually just wondering what Keith was going to say next. I don't need to see any more evidence, Sean. You have a miraculous gift, and it must have been destiny that brought us together, because I know how we can monetize you. You and I need never work again. I was not sure that Keith had ever worked in the full sense of the word, but I stayed quiet. If you had to sum up your power in one word, Sean, what would it be? One word? Um, astral travel? I suggested tentatively. That is two words, Sean. Come on, think harder. You have the power to... what? I wanted to say leave my body, but of course that was three words. Fly? That was only part of it. Walk through walls? Again, not a complete description and too many words. I looked at Keith and shook my head. The power to watch, Sean. The power to watch. And what do people do when they're being watched? Clearly, I was not going to offer any answers from my own experience here. What was Keith driving at? I shrugged and turned up my palms. Keith sighed elaborately. Of course, he was delighted at being able to explain all his thinking to me, but the dramatic game we were playing required him to act as though it was an exasperating chore. They behave themselves. When people think they're being watched, they behave. They only do things that the watchers will find acceptable, even if they want to do something completely different. That's why there's CCTV everywhere. And speed cameras too. Even if they're not watching you at any given time, at any given place, they want you to feel like you're being watched. So you behave acceptably. The speech marks Keith placed around that final word were virtually audible. Let me tell you a story, Sean. Once I was sat in the square outside the library, before your time this was, and there was a bunch of pigeons walking about, squabbling, pecking each other, you know what they're like. I did. The pigeons were there every day without fail, just like me. They usually make the bare minimum of movement to get out of my way. Once, 
one of them flew straight into my face. Just like how my parents died, sort of. I'd been watching them for about 15 minutes and I started to wonder if I could catch one. I thought about it logically. One of the pigeons was definitely slower than the others. Maybe it was old or injured or had eaten something poisonous. It kept sitting down while the others stayed on their feet the whole time. Even when people walked close by and the other pigeons scuttled out of the way, this one made the least effort. Sometimes didn't move at all. I thought rationally, that one will be the easiest to catch. The test was, can I catch a pigeon, remember? So going for a sick one wasn't cheating. I was pretty sure I'd be able to get it. And then I thought, well, what would I do if I caught it? What would you have done, Sean? I didn't like it when Keith kept using my name over and over again. It felt a little bit like he was patronising me. Let it go, I said. Yeah. Keith dropped his eyes and laughed, apparently to himself. Yeah, you probably would have done. And maybe I would have done too. But at that moment, when I asked myself that question, the answer that came back to me was, I will bite its head off. I wasn't expecting that. I really wanted to catch the pigeon and bite its head off, to spit out the head and the feathers and the blood, to see what the good people of Woking, going quietly about their business, made of that. What they made of something like that, happening right there in front of them. Did you? No, of course I didn't. I wouldn't touch one of those fucking disgusting things. Filthy creatures. But that's not the point. The point, Sean, is that we hold back from what our inner selves tell us we want to do because of what society might think of it. Does it matter what bodies do? Surely it's only souls that matter. People only give in to their real selves when they don't think they're being watched. And let me tell you this, Sean, people are not saints. Everyone has something foul they keep hidden. Everyone. But they let it out when they think they're alone. Now, I must acknowledge here that Keith's story didn't really hold together. He'd said that he wanted to bite the pigeon's head off because he wanted to provoke a reaction from other people, hadn't he? He didn't resist that desire because he was afraid what they'd think. He resisted it because the thought of putting a pigeon's head in his mouth made him feel queasy. He didn't want to catch the pigeon at all. He wanted to be noticed by shocking people. He didn't achieve that because the way he dreamed up of being noticed was something he realised he couldn't actually bring himself to do. Keith's stories didn't always strictly illustrate the point he was trying to make, but I usually understood what he was on about. Also, I think his mind was wandering towards the end of his peroration. When he started talking about everyone hiding something, I got the vague sense he was thinking of something specific that someone specific had kept hidden, rather than people in general. Anyway, Keith seemed convinced that his story not only made sense, but also that it proved his point. And his confidence gave me confidence that it did. When you're doing your thing, Sean, you can watch people who think they're not being watched. Privacy is valuable, isn't it? I was back on solid ground here, so I nodded vigorously. And people will pay to keep things private, won't they? Why shouldn't we benefit from their failings? I nodded harder. This was building up to some sort of climax, I could tell. I looked up at Keith to see he was sitting back, looking me straight in the face. After a couple of seconds of silence, he raised his eyebrows in invitation. I gingerly raised mine, 
mirroring his gesture with my own RSVP. Keeping his eyes fixed on me, Keith cocked his head and turned his hands palms up. There was a pause that seemed to last hours. I was about to speak, and I'm fairly sure that I was going to offer, I don't know what you want me to say. Fortunately, he interrupted me before I got the first syllable out. Luckily for me, Keith's desire to finish his monologue outweighed his hope that I was keeping up. Sean, you can find out things people would rather nobody knew about them. And then they will pay us not to tell. And you can go anywhere and you can never be caught. We can't lose. Keith sat back triumphant. So that was it. Nobody was going to have to eat a pigeon after all. We were going to become blackmailers. We found our first victim, or our first client, depending on your point of view, through a neighbour of Keith's who was well known to be playing away. Her name was Neris Shirley. She lived on the same street as Keith and his mum, and her husband worked on oil rigs in Scotland. That meant he was away for weeks at a time, and Neris, who was on chatting when they bumped into one another in the street terms with Karen Pardew, took advantage of this to party the weekends away with a succession of different men, as she had no qualms telling any of her acquaintances. She was a big woman. Buxom, you might say. Neris was always immaculately made up and coiffured, and wore very nice clothes, most of which were at least one size too small for her. She was in her mid-forties, had an infectious laugh, worked on the pharmacy counter in boots and had a wide circle of female friends. Keith hated most people, but he seemed to have a particular dislike of her. Shortly after we came up with the blackmail idea, Keith put her forward as a good starting point. My mum's friend Neris is having at least three ongoing affairs. That bloody woman is always shooting her mouth off about her fellas and the presents they buy her. I don't know what she does with them though, because her husband's a bit of a mad bastard. If he ever found out, he'd probably kill her. But then who knows what he gets up to on shore leave in Aberdeen. Are we going to blackmail her then? I asked. Sean, please. You've seen where I live. Do you think people with money to spare live down there? Anyway, she might be a mouthy slapper, but we don't want anyone getting killed. I do remember him saying that. We don't want anyone getting killed. No, she's always telling my mum about these different men she's seeing regularly, and she never misses a chance to point out that they're married and well off. We're going to find out who they are, Sean, and then see if they want their good ladies at home to know about the Holiday Inn and the town bike. Keith spat the last two words out with real venom. We're going to find their weak points and leverage them to the hilt. We're going to gather some data from this pilot so that when we roll out the plans on a large scale, we've learned the important lessons. It was only much later that I found out that Keith had lost his virginity to Neris. The circumstances under which it happened and what came afterwards had been quite formative for him. He made a bit more sense once I knew about that, but I didn't know it then. That Friday night, Keith and I went to the pub, Shunters by the station, which is the opening venue for hundreds of people's woking nights out or the first pre-loading stop on a trip to London's nocturnal attractions. Keith knew that Neris and her squad would be there, having picked up intel from a reliable source, his mum, earlier in the week. Under no circumstances were we to make contact. Our mission was strictly recon. We were to observe map her movement patterns and determine her final destination. Then I would go home and go to sleep and see what happened next. 
Keith insisted on sitting in a corner facing the door. Apparently he had once read a book about the IRA and believed that this was the safest position to adopt should somebody be coming to assassinate you in a pub. Because you can see who's coming in the door, apparently. I got a pint for me and an orange juice for Keith. The whole orange juice thing had gone unremarked since our camping trip and was coming back from the bar when Neris and her friends burst in. They were already drunk. It was 8pm. There were five of them, all of similar proportions and appearance to Neris. They were laughing uncontrollably. Keith froze like a rabbit in the headlights of an oncoming fake-tanned, perfume-soaked chiffon transit van. Neris spotted him immediately. Eee, it's little Keith. How's your mum? One of the other women said something I couldn't hear, and they all burst out laughing again. Keith looked like he was having a stroke. His temples were pulsing, and sweat dribbled through his eyebrows and onto his cheeks. Beyond that, nothing on his face moved at all. Say hello to your mum, Neris bellowed over her shoulder as the female tide swept her away towards the bar. I placed the orange juice in front of Keith and sat down on my stool. His face was still frozen solid. Maybe the corner of his right eye was twitching? It was hard to tell in that damp pub light. Silent seconds turned to minutes. Keith's face was still completely vacant. I felt that it was going to fall to me to break the spell. Is that her then? Yes, Keith replied, still in his trance. He closed his eyes and shook his head infinitesimally. When he opened them again, his eyes had come back from whatever far away place they had been to and focused on me. Yes, that's the bitch. I was slightly taken aback by the bitterness in Keith's voice. Keith, I think we've made contact. Do we need to abort? I picked up some of the jargon myself. No, Sean. His gaze drifted from me to the group of women at the bar, who were cackling at this point over the word cocktail. We proceed as planned. This changes nothing. We watched them for about an hour, sipping our drinks in awkward silence. They drank, squawked, and from time to time popped out in pairs for a cigarette or to the toilet. The occasional man would sidle over and attempt to engage one or another of the group in conversation, but he would be quickly rounded upon by the others and embarrassed into a hasty retreat. I was unnerved by Keith's apparent discomposure. What are we going to do next? I asked. There's a nightclub a couple of doors down the road. It opens at nine, but no one ever goes there until ten at the earliest. It's free for women until eleven, he replied without taking his eyes off our quarry. They'll go there between ten and eleven. See how they're scaring the randoms off? That means she's meeting someone later. Otherwise, they'd be all over the poor unknowing bastards by now. That means we should go now so that you can get back here to follow them when they leave. We've still got at least an hour until then. Come on. Keith got up. I hastily downed the dregs of my pint and followed him. The pub, practically deserted when we had arrived as the last of the day shift was drifting away, was filling up now. Isolated groups had coalesced into a single mass. The bands of office workers out for payday drinks were dwindling in numbers as they headed home to wives, husbands, cats and kids. In turn, they were being replaced by those who had already been home and were embarking on their big nights out. There were single-sex groups of older women, like Neris and her crew, and of younger men, their steroid-enhanced arms bulging like tree trunks, scoop-necked t-shirts exposing colossal swollen but strangely hairless chests. Their massive, top-heavy bulk tapered away through waspish waists 
to tiny plimsoll-clad feet topped by two inches of naked twig-like ankle. Their appearance combined ferociously aggressive masculinity with feminine delicacy expressed in their immaculate hair, shaped eyebrows and golden brown coloration. Naturally, Keith and I were both thoroughly intimidated by them and we made our way through the crowd doing our best to avoid them. Although the crowd seemed like a single mass, it had a cellular structure with intergroup fault lines running throughout. Backs facing backs, chairs pushed under tables, the glass collector's section of the bar. The trick for any departing solitary pub-goer was to navigate these interstices to the exit. Keith was dawdling, casting suspicious eyes towards Neris's group. I could see his problem. He couldn't get out without putting a hand on someone's shoulder so as to deliver the line, Excuse me, mate. I took control of the situation. Excuse me, mate. The groups in front of us compressed slightly, enabling us to squeeze through. Keith followed closely behind me. Once or twice, people in our wake would sniff the air with aghast expressions on their faces and glances would be cast our way. Was that you? I think it's that freak in the coat. Smelly bastard. Shh, don't let him hear you. We don't want to get into a conversation with a nutter. Keith's stale odour stood out sharply in the haze of links, fashion designer-branded aftershaves and sour drink. One last push stood between us and the exit. A tangle of student types, male and female, conspicuous in the bar by a deliberate scruffiness that was, in its way, no less meticulously constructed than the appearance of anyone else there. I could not see the natural way through. Go around? No. Bodybuilders to the left, Hindu to the right, people facing every which way, no clear logic to their organisation. I leaned in to the nearest girl. Excuse me. She didn't hear. I put my hand up to her shoulder and cupped it, without touching but close enough for a change in the local temperature to be registered by each of us. Excuse me, please. The girl inched forwards enough for an opening to be apparent. I went in crab-wise. Through my trousers, my penis brushed against her elbow. I felt a surge through my lower spine evaporate at my pelvic floor and melt into my thighs and testicles. Please, God, let me get out of here. Don't let me get an erection now. We wriggled further into the group. Keith had his eyes shut. At his approach, people were starting to look round and back away. Eventually, we squeezed out onto the street, as if the pub itself had disgorged us. A pair of doormen in black eyed us disdainfully. Right, Sean, you go home, and you know what to do next. I did. I'll sit in the kebab shop over there. If she goes anywhere other than rumours before eleven, I'll call you. If you don't hear from me, assume we are go. Keith had regained his composure now we were out of the pub's crush and out of sight of Neris's gang. What if she hasn't gone anywhere before eleven, I asked. She will. Trust me, I know how this goes. I didn't ask how he knew, but this was Keith's show and I trusted him. I bid him good night and set off home. Aha! A familiar voice boomed out from behind me. Verily, tis a merry Andrew wending his way home from the tavern. I turned and saw my work colleague Derek. Neither of his eyes were looking directly at me, but seemed to be swimming back and forth. He was with a group of similarly peculiar-looking men and was holding a wooden staff. Evening, Derek, I said. We've not seen you out and about on dark nights such as these, young Master Strong. 
Hast thou been partaking of the fermented beverages? Um, yes. I've just been to the pub with a mate, but I'm off home now. Ah, the magisterial grain. My jolly band of loafers and I are headed cityward to the capital, the Capitolium, Londinium. Plough in it, eh? one of Derrick's crowd added. Not proven, Martin. Conjectural. Objection sustained, my lud. Yes, London bound are we on um iron horse. How? <clears throat> Derrick stifled a gargantuan belch. His nose dripped a little from the effort. Come on, Derrick, or we'll miss the train. Excuse me. Jesus, where did that come from? Yes, camera annual convention at Alexandra Palace. Bloody great do. You should tag along. It's ticket only, though. Members only. One of the two. Derrick! Coming. Well, Sean, I bid thee a good night. Wait for me, comrades. Tovarishi. Derrick waddled off in pursuit of his friends, coughing intermittently, leaving me alone again. It was a twenty-five-minute walk or so from the station back to my house. As I passed through the town centre and into the suburban streets beyond, the dribs and drabs of people on their way out for the night became less frequent. Boy racers sped up to traffic lights and screeched to a stop, their flared exhausts emitting stuttering bass growls. Late-night dog-walkers shuffled across the pedestrian crossings, followed by their reluctant foot-dragging companions. I walked down the steps to the canal path. Here nothing moved, or nothing that I could see anyway. The roar of the A-road above dimmed as I headed back towards my house. The path was deserted, and I jumped when a flapping sound burst out of a bush behind me. My brain knew it was only a bird, but my body had reacted with the second shot down my spine of the evening before I could tell my central nervous system that there was nothing to be afraid of. Soon I could see the end of my road, the road I'd grown up in, the only home I'd ever known. Lights were on in all the other houses except mine, which was dark. I walked up the driveway, unlocked my front door and went in. As usual, the house was empty. I got myself ready for bed, brushed my teeth, took off my shirt, trousers and socks and tried to have a dump. No such luck. I put the TV on and flopped into my bed. You'd suppose that the excitement of the situation, a real adventure, would have kept me awake, right? Wrong. Soon my eyes were drooping, although the thought of that student girl I'd pushed past kept circling back through my mind. Then I was on the slide. I went left, and what felt like seconds later, it could have been minutes later, I was on the ceiling. Now I had to go all the way back into town to where I'd just come from, which was a pain in the arse. I glided through my bedroom window and onto the street. Back on the canal path, a rat skittered out in front of me and stopped to eat something or other it had found on the floor. Maybe a fried chicken bone? Yes, there was a discarded cardboard carton with something spilling out of it a few paces ahead, I think. It was dark, I couldn't see. The rat couldn't see me either. To break up the tedium of retracing my exact steps, I floated over the surface of the canal itself and drifted up to the height of the treetops, so that the sleeping water was like a glittering grey carpet beneath me. The lights of the A324 receded into the distance ahead of me, and beyond them the black silhouettes of office blocks on the multi-storey car park. I flew along the tree line, over the main road and back into town. Nothing much had changed in the hour I'd been gone. The pedestrianised streets were empty, and noise and heat, I presume I couldn't feel it, 
pumped out of the bars and restaurants. A pair of police officers in high-vis waistcoats, thumbs tucked into the lapels of their webbing, strode slowly and watchfully along the pavements. Back on ground level, I turned into the station road and passed the Weatherspoons. Keith was still sat in the kebab shop opposite, looking out of the window. It was well past eleven by now. Along with his phone, he had an orange polystyrene box in front of him, with a soggy pita bread draped with a few strands of wet iceberg lettuce languishing in the bottom. He looked miserable. I carried on down the road towards the nightclub. A blue neon light flashed above the doorway. Rumours. The sign illuminated a sagging, grimy banner emblazoned with For Mad For It People Only, above various disclaimers about underage drinking, drug use and fighting on the premises. Another pair of bouncers stood outside. These two were older, more worn down and less well-dressed than the chain pub doorman we'd seen earlier. One smoked listlessly as the other nodded in an all-male group of punters. I joined the back of the crowd and followed. Inside, the club was very much like any other second-rate small-town night spot across the UK. I'm sure you know the type. Through the door, you go down a flight of dimly-lit steps to a window where a bored-looking, thick-set woman in her mid-fifties takes payments and coats. From here, you pass through a heavy door set with panels of chequered plate aluminium flooring, not unlike the entrance to the industrial zone of the Crystal Maze. As you push this open, a cloud of steam, dry ice and body heat is blasted outwards by a medulla-shaking, vertigo-inducing thunder of bass noise. Your eyes adjust, and what appeared to be the mouth of hell itself opening up before you turns out to be a half-empty room with a backlit bar, banks of built-in seating around the outside and a laminate dance floor, held together with conspicuous strips of well-worn electrical tape in the centre. The Sonne-Lumiere display of lasers, rotating multicoloured spotlights and sublimated carbon dioxide was entirely disproportionate to the languid attitudes of the seated clubbers and the desultory shape-throwing or semi-ironic pissed-up abandon of the small groups of dancers. I'd been to places like this before, not often but enough for it to be familiar. If I could smell in my present state, I know there would be an eye-stinging aroma of bleach coming from the toilets, no doubt masking something worse. I located one of Neris's girlfriends. It appeared that the group had dispersed on entry. Two of them were gyrating on the dance floor in a manner I can only assume they intended to be erotic. In a loose perimeter around them, werewolf-eyed middle-aged men postured, trying in vain to attract their attention. I scanned the crowd, such as it was, but Neris was nowhere to be seen. Shit. All at once I couldn't breathe or move. A soft, aromatic presence filled my senses for a second, and it was gone as soon as it had appeared. It left the thought of a taste of iron in my mouth. Neris was standing in front of me, having stepped straight through the space my consciousness was occupying. She was holding hands with a sheepish-looking man, whose lack of tie and two open shirt buttons failed to disguise the way his suit proclaimed that he had come here directly from a very straight-laced workplace. He was half walking, half dancing, and she was leading him to the floor. He appeared reluctant to proceed, so Neris moved around in front of him, turned her back to him and wound her waist up and down, rubbing her plentiful arse against his suited crotch. Spotting this, Neris's friends cheered from the dance floor and trotted over with their hands in the air. They just did not care, following the instructions of the DJ. They took the man by one hand each. 
He looked even more embarrassed than before and glanced helplessly around over both shoulders, but there was no escape for him now. I settled in to observe how events would unfold. The thing about being a watcher is you have to be patient. Dramatic events rarely follow hard and fast on one another's heels. A seemingly endless series of distractions, blind alleys and pointless delays come between important developments in what turns out afterwards to have been the plot. I'm used to it though. The kind of seductions I'm accustomed to are seldom smooth, rarely romantic. Alcopops and bottled beers have to be drunk in quantity to create the mood. Toilets frequently frequented, passing acquaintances chatted with, drunken friends propped up. Within an hour, however, Neris and her man were all over each other. That's what I like about middle-aged couples. What they lose in attractiveness over the young, they make up for in getting to the point. In a quietish corner of the nightclub, he was seated with her straddling him. Mercifully, she was not wearing a skirt. From my vantage point above, I could see his hand was inside her blouse. I wondered how long it would take them to remember that they weren't teenagers and that they probably did have somewhere else that they could take this. Not long. Soon, Neris stood up. The man immediately leaned forwards to conceal the erection straining against his flies. He stood up, sticking his bum out in a bent-over pose, picked up a bottle from the table and held it at an unnatural height in front of his crotch. Neris laughed. The man laughed too. He yanked at the front of his pants and then stood up to his normal height, the boner successfully concealed somewhere or other. He put his arm around her shoulder and they walked to the exit together. I hope this fucker's married, I thought. I was not disappointed. Indeed, Peter Smithson turned out to be an excellent investment for us, a reliable, steady source of income who provided us with a comfortable learning curve for our entry into the blackmail business. Peter and Neris took a taxi to the Holiday Inn, just as Keith had said they would. Once there, they had a drink in the bar, but soon found themselves unable to keep their hands to themselves. They headed upstairs. No sooner were they in Peter's room than they were ripping one another's clothes off, and pretty soon they were doing it, same as everyone else. What made things particularly interesting, though, was that after the initial flames of passion had cooled down, Peter popped into the bathroom and came back with a small plastic vial. He tapped out a small pile of white powder from it onto the desk and, using a credit card, arranged it into two lines. Cocaine! This was a turn-up, I thought. Anyway, things went on from that point as you might expect them to do. Cocaine was snorted, sex was had, more coke, more sex, then sleep. I got Peter's name from the credit card, helpfully left the right way up on the desk. It was a corporate card for some huge company I'd heard of, but I had no idea what they did. They sponsored a Premier League football team? That was a good sign. I just had to wait now and find out who Peter Smithson was. I wandered around the hotel corridors, the kitchens, the fire escape, looking into a few of the bedrooms now and then to kill time. Every ten minutes or so, or what felt like ten minutes, I popped back to make sure they were still asleep. I said I'm patient, but I'd never really had to wait like this before. Once the sex was over, I'd usually head home for my solitary gratification. This time, though, I was excited. It was like being a detective, and I was impatient to get things moving again. I tried to clap my hands, push glasses off the bedside table, make hissing sounds, but to no avail. I could only watch them sleep. I felt very alone at that moment. Eventually, Peter stirred. It was about 7am. 
He got out of bed gently and tiptoed to the bathroom. Having had a quick shower, he collected up the previous night's clothes and stuffed them into a plastic bag. From a suit hanger in the wardrobe, he took out another, more or less identical shirt, jacket and pair of trousers. He got dressed quietly, all the time checking Neris for signs of awakening. He packed the suit hanger, his wash bag, into which he put the half-empty canister of cocaine, the plastic bag and his other belongings into a large hold-all. He slipped the credit card back into his wallet, put his wallet in his back pocket, unplugged his phone from its charger and put the phone inside his jacket. With the exaggerated care of someone who knows full well he's not going to be caught, but is enjoying the dramatic possibilities of imagining what might happen if he is, Peter padded over to the hotel room door, opened it and left. Neris grunted as the door clicked shut and rolled over in her sleep. In the corridor, Peter smiled to himself as he hung the Do Not Disturb sign on the door handle. Loath as I was to leave Neris, I was concerned to know how she'd react to waking up apparently abandoned. I tailed Peter. Passing the breakfast buffet, he walked straight out into the car park. It was a beautiful, cold, sunny morning. The light was virtually arctic in its clarity, and the breeze made him shiver like antiseptic on a graze. He opened the boot of his black Mercedes C-Class and lifted up a panel in the carpeted floor. He pushed the hold-all into this compartment, closed the lid and slammed the boot shut. Casting a look back at the hotel as he got into the driver's seat, he drove away. I realised at that moment I had no way of following him. Panic flared through me. What would Keith say? But wait, I had a name and an employer. The car paused at the entrance to the hotel car park before it turned out left. Now I had a number plate. I drifted into the air and watched the car getting smaller as it headed west. Away from London, I thought, as the car blended into the traffic where I lost sight of it. And that, dear audience, is where we shall leave things for this week. I will be back with part four on Sunday the 27th of May. I look forward to seeing you then. Goodbye for now.